0: So we're continuing our "This Is Us" series. Uh, last week, Chris and his wife did an amazing job. It was so good to hear. If you weren't here last week, I highly encourage you to watch it on the website WillowParkChurch.com/media. You will find Chris there. If you look under the Creekside tab, you'll see uh, his message. It was great. Um, when you see somebody tangibly being the hands and the feet, it does something. It Just changes you. Just like. Oh, this is amazing, and this big thing was mission, and we're like, yeah, mission overseas, but we're all on mission. God has given us a, a goal, a, a thing to strive for while we're here, and that's just to go out and to change the world for His kingdom. And so He just asks, He just asks us to be obedient. Chris heard the, his, the voice of the Lord. He was like, yeah, let's take all of our family, let's do this for two and a half months, and they went and they did it. And when you're obedient, amazing things happen. And so. We're going to continue this week talking about the church, talking about who we are. Um, and the enemy, he's really trying to destroy the church. He's trying to ruin it. He's trying to take the bride, which is us, and he's trying to, just to, to separate it. And we see how you know, divorce is becoming a, it's not kind of a whatever thing in our culture. And it's, he's trying to do that within our culture, too. He's trying to separate us from Christ, our bride. <clears throat> And so he's trying to erode the beauty, the majesty of what we do here, of who we are. And so it got me thinking of like high places, of like places that we, we look at and we see like, oh, that's amazing. And so I got a couple pictures of some of those places. We got, this is St. Basil or, or Basil and it's in Russia. And it's a place where you look at it and some people would know what it is right away. And then there's protocol to get in. And then there's the next one, there's Petra. It's amazing, and then we have Mecca, and Mecca is huge for the Muslim community. It may, it just it looks, it kind of looks awe-inspiring in a sense. I know what they're doing, but like it just like just like, wow, that looks like a great building. And then for the Americans, we got this, and so we got football stadium. We know that sometimes the protocol to get into football stadiums is quite high too, and so this is Notre Dame. Uh, If you've ever been to Notre Dame, actually, me and my wife, we drove to Pennsylvania from Saskatchewan. I know, 30 hours in a car. Crazy. And so, like, on the one side here, there's this big cathedral, and it's got Jesus, and he's doing this, and they call him Touchdown Jesus, because you can see, like, his hands. Yeah, I don't know. Americans, what are we doing? Um, But do you ever have those things that you're not supposed to, like, touch? Like, Growing up in my house, there's things you just don't touch. You just don't touch it. You look at it, but you don't touch it. For some, like some of the front rooms in uh, the my father-in-law's house, it was like you don't touch. Like it's like it's sacred almost. And so then there's things that you can only look at, or you just maybe you can't even breathe on it, right? And so sometimes there's a five-step process to get into where you want to be. And this got me thinking of my house, actually, not my personal house, my parents' house. And my dad, he has this amazing memory of where stuff was. And so he had video games and he didn't even play video games. It's the weirdest thing. And so and he had tons of them and he was like, I'll play them one day. I'm like, oh, whatever, dad. And so I remember we would take some and we go play with him and, and we wouldn't put it back. He'd walk in the house and automatically he like knew something, dropped his bag, something's missing. And he was like, oh no, I didn't put the game back. And so he would just accumulate stuff. He likes stuff for some reason. Dad, if you're watching this, I'm sorry. I love you so much. But just think how great it is that you're part of my sermon illustration, Dad. <laughs> and so he would, and he would, we just have stuff. And like when we talk about me and my siblings and Kim, like, I'm kinda like when he passes away, like I'm not looking forward to the day of having to clean out his place. Because here's a live look at his house right now. And so that's actually not my father. And that's not a live look. This is what it feels like sometimes. It's just tons of stuff. And it's just important to him. I mean, you don't mess with it. And it's like, or you'll lose a limb. And I was like, oh, I'm just joking. won't lose a limb. He's never threatened me. But I had fear that I'd lose a limb, even though we never would have. But I'm like, I'm afraid. And so... I love you, Dad. I love you. And so I use this story to provide a picture of what I'm actually going to be talking about. The things in my father's house, they were important to him, to my parents' house. It was important to him. And so before we get into like, who we are as a church, I feel like we need to talk about the magnitude of the church. We need to talk about how important the church is and how God views us His church. We need to see that this is important to Christ before we dive into what we are to do. What does God think about the church? What, how does he look at us? Like what, is he, what does he see when he looks down at us? What does he see? When he's looking down on us right now, what, what, what's, what is he feeling? The more you get to know me, like, I I like to connect the Old Testament to the New Testament. I really think we will understand the magnitude of the New Testament if we can understand the Old Testament and realize it's all connected. It's all a one beautiful story. And sometimes you have those aha moments. You're like, when you see something in the Old Testament that goes to the New Testament, you're like, man, that's amazing. It gives you a deeper appreciation of Christ and of the prophecies and of what we do. And so, here we go. We're going to start in the Old Testament, but we're going to move to the New Testament. I'm not starting in Genesis 1 and going to go all the way to Revelation. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't. We can if we want. You might have to book the next year of your life. But we're going to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5 to 7. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up here, just like that, right on the screen. And it says David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, and that's not like the castanet website here. Castanet means songs. Harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down. And he died there beside the Ark of God. You read this story, and it's like, what's weird. It's like, the ox was walking. Hit a pothole or something. Uzzah just naturally just went out, and he grabbed it. And then I'm bothered by that. I read about God killing Uzzah just because he tried to keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling. Uzzah touched the Ark because the cart it was riding on hit a pothole. It seemed like a trivial mistake with good intentions. Sure, God had forbidden anyone from touching the ark, but what was, who was I supposed to do? Let the holy ark of God fall to the ground? It's like, what is he supposed to do? Just natural reflexes, right? Just doing something that's natural to him. He doesn't want it to fall. He realizes how sacred it is. He just, oh, he just can't touch the ground, right? And so it's like, for us, it's just natural. Something falls, and we try to catch it. Like, who's dropped their phone? Everybody, right? Everyone drops their phone, and so I've gotten to the point now where, like, my my phone starts to drop. I automatically put my foot out as like a barrier, just in case it doesn't hit the ground like with full force. But that kind of carries over into other things. Like, I dropped a knife, and I'm like, huh? I'm like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> and so it's just natural, right? Just natural instincts. He goes out. It's like it's falling. Once I was in full conversation with a student, just looking him in the eye deeply in conversation, holding one of our kids. Evie or Jude, Malachi, he, if you get to know Malachi, he just likes to throw balls. And so mid-conversation, deep, and throws the ball. I didn't even look, just grabbed it, then threw it back. And the guy was in a weird deep conversation. He's like, I have to ask you a very important question. Are you (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Man? I wouldn't have believed it if I seen it, right? Just natural reaction. Something's falling, you try to stop it. King Uzzah was just doing what he just felt he should do. Was an accident, the ox stumbled. It's an honest mistake. Almost didn't seem fair. Didn't seem fair that he died, that God struck him dead. And then you start to think about other stories that are maybe like harsh like that. In 1 Samuel 13, it's a puzzling that King Saul's sacrifice cost him the kingdom. After all, he waited seven days for Samuel, the priest, to come and make the offering. Samuel was late. He was waiting. It's like, well, I'll do it because it needs to be done. But he didn't show up, he didn't show up, Samuel, when he said he wouldn't. So Saul did it. And to me, it seems noble that Saul offered the sacrifice because he didn't want to go to war with first, without first acknowledging God. Now the kingdom would be torn from him, taken from him. Then what about in Numbers 20? About Moses, who didn't get to see the promised land because he struck the rock rather than speaking to it. After everything Moses went through, We know, though, they weren't easy people, the Israelites. They liked to complain and murmur. They were very forgetful. Was it such a big crime to be frustrated with the people and strike the rod in anger? It seems so bad. Then there is Ananias and Sapphira. They were both struck dead because they lied about how much money they donated to the church. This is in Acts 5. And this is in the New Testament. It's like, Really? Who hasn't exaggerated just a little bit? You know what? It's like, how much did it cost? It cost 10 bucks, Eh, like 790, you know, you kind of say something's close to it. It's like that face you make when your kids say they exaggerate. I didn't touch it, or I just looked at it, or I don't know how it fell. Then we think about exaggerating, how we can exaggerate things. Ever heard of like job titles? There's a media distribution officer, but actually you're just a paper boy. You're a sanitation engineer, but you're really a garbage man. Put this on your resume. You're a gastronomical hygiene engineer, but you're really you a dishwasher. You're a color distribution technician, but you really just paint the house. And then we, sometimes you see people on their resumes exaggerate a little bit. Like they'll put this up there. They'll say supervised financial transactions with the public. But really they're saying this. Worked as a cashier. Employee training in office technology. Helped an employee train in office technology, but really to help them, showed a new person how to work the coffee machine. Then some people very increased revenue by 100%, but really convinced the customer into buying two ice cream combs instead of one. Our culture, we tend to exaggerate a little bit. Make things bigger than they seem. It's like the telephone game, right? The story gets out of control. Then also on top of it, Paul told the Corinthians that many of them were sick and some had even died because they celebrated communion in an unworthy manner. This is in 1 Corinthians 11. If Paul wasn't exaggerating, could we be one step away from death if we didn't check our hearts before we went to the communion table? To us, many situations, we in Scripture, involve a punishment, that sometimes it seems too severe for the crime. But why? Why do we feel this way sometimes? Why? Let's take a close look at our society. We live in a human-centered world among people who see themselves sometimes as the highest authority. We are quick to say things like, that isn't fair, because we, li- we believe we deserve certain rights as humans. Yet we give little thought to the rights God deserves as God. Even in the church, we can act as those God's actions should revolve around us when this is all about Him. What we do here on Sunday is all about Him. The stories in Scripture are meant to show us that there exists something, something of greater value than our existence and our rights. And the big thing is this. And this is huge for us as a church. This is very, very big. And this is where we want to lead. This is where I want to land. Sometimes we really don't understand what it means for something to be sacred. Why has this happened? I don't know. I don't know over the time, right? You see in the Bible, things were just sacred, just sacred, what was happening. And maybe it's because we live in a world where people carelessly rush into things. If we don't rush, we'll be passed up and miss out. So we frantically follow the pattern of the world, ignore the fact that God calls us to act differently, causes us to be different, causes us to, to look different in this world. You see, the truth that we need to grab before we dig deeper is this, that there is no greater honor on earth than to be a part of God's church, to do what we do here on Sundays, to be his light in the world. It is beautiful to him. It is sacred to him. It is something he loves for and he cares for. And that is us meeting together as a family and as a body. Like when were the last time we were maybe like awestruck by the fact that we are part of Christ's body? That we are a part. We have this privilege to be a part of it. To be with him. To to be his hands and feet. To meet together like this. This is an amazing privilege. And I don't say this to, to guilt us that this is a great honor or to be more religious. We're not about, Christ isn't about us being more religious. He wants us to just be in relationship. And he knows this is a key part of it, what we do here on Sundays and what we do when we meet outside of here in our small groups where we gather together. Ephesians 5, 29, 30 says this. After all... No one had ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. We should be stunned by this that we are connected to God. We're connected to him. And when we meet together, we're all very connected with him. And he is so big and strong and powerful that he is described as somebody in unapproachable light. And we think about this with the sun and how it's unapproachable. How we'd be closer just a bit, we'd burn up. And if we were further, we'd freeze. And how can we be connected to somebody who is stronger than the sun? Is that just amazing? We are attached to someone that is so sacred. But you know what is amazing? That he sees this as sacred. I'm not talking about. Like sacred things that we do, like we're trying to put it on a pedestal, but he sees this coming together as the body of Christ as something so beautiful, so sacred, something that we should we should love to do. Let's unwrap this a little bit. You can turn to Second Chronicles seven, verses one to four. Because in Second Chronicles we get this beautiful picture of the temple. The temple has been built. And the ark of God is carried in, and now it's put in, into the temple. And so as a place to be his presence. In the ark there was the scrolls of the Ten Commandments, the rod of Aaron, and a gold jar with manna in it. And so God's presence was in there. And so in, in 2 Chronicles 7, we have, see the dedication of this temple. The temple was considered a sacred place. There's all these things you had to do in order to go into The, the temple. There was the cauldrons. There was the washings. There was only then the person who can go into the holies of holies was the priest. But just even to be in the outer courts, it was amazing. In 2 Chronicles 7, 1-4 says this, When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, "He is good; his love endures forever." Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. Can you imagine being there and watching the fire come down. It would just be amazing be amazing to see. It would be like humbling. It would be awestruck. It would be like hard to put into words. Trying to describe it would be impossible. And then there's the thrill of worshiping with other believers. In the middle of all that. The temple was the place where heaven intersected with earth now. A glimpse of his glory was made visible now for the human eyes. It was beautiful. But you see... The New Testament describes something even greater. The fact that I could, sometimes I think of this as the best or think of this as so cool is an indication that I actually don't even, can sometimes I don't appreciate of what we have here because it is better. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are built together to become a dwelling in which God, God lives by his Spirit. I just want to read that again. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. It would be cool to stand outside the temple and watch glorious God's glory to sin, but I get something so much better that I literally am a part of the temple itself. Somehow the blood of Jesus, I became worthy of joining with others to form a dwelling place for God. Peter described us as living stones. You are a stone in the same structure in which the apostles and prophets are the foundation, and Jesus Himself is the cornerstone. In here it says there's two words I want to point out. Paul talked about this concept. He used the plural form of you right at the beginning, a plural. So not just meaning just you singularly, but you, everyone. And he used the singular form of temple, not just me but singularly that us together, we are the temple. And so we get this amazing picture of God's fire and glory coming down into the temple so he can dwell with them. And this wasn't the only time we see fire coming down from heaven to be in his temple. If we think about Acts 2, when the first church met, what came down? The disciples were united in praying when tongues of fire fell on them. They were the temple. Fire fell on them. And you know the rest of the story. We are a part of that story. We are still the continuation of that. We are now still the fire that this world needs to see. We are that dwelling place where people should be drawn to. This church, when we meet together as the temple, so much better than the Old Testament temple. Come on, body. This is amazing. We are the family of God we are now this no longer is it just stuck in this one place we get to come together we get to rub each other's shoulders we get to ask how each other is doing when someone's hurting we can help console we can be that feet, those hands and feet that Jesus called us to be and then we get to go out and we get to take that fire that came down in Acts 2 with us this is amazing We are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. Something sacred. And this is why we say we do this on Sundays. Not because I got to get up and go to church on Sunday. It's the Christian thing to do. It's what Christ calls us to do. To be that body. To be that temple. Through Jesus' sacrifice, you have been joined to his church because of this, you are not only a part of God's sacred temple, but you are also a part of the heavenly community. So in the New Old Testament, we had this. Here's the temple, the outer courts. Not everybody can go into the outer courts. That would be like me and you. Only the priest can go in, past that door, and then into the other one. Then the fire came down. It was amazing to see. But now we get this. That fire, that presence when it's in us. We get to be that living stone. We come together, we form a big temple. We get to sharpen each other. We get to worship. This is sacred to Him. Like the ta- temple was sacred to the Lord in the Old Testament, this is so much sacred to Him that we come together and meet. So sacred that He died for us so we can do this. This is amazing. What we come here to do on Sunday is amazing. Nobody can tell me otherwise. Even if it's, we sometimes feel like we drag our feet coming together as the body of Christ. is the, the best. It's the best. And as we continue to sink our teeth into what we are doing is sacred, we hear Christ talk about, remember I said those exaggerated things. Maybe sometimes it seemed too harsh. He's realized what we do here on as a body, is so sacred that he said this in First Corinthians three sixteen 16-17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We are that temple. Now let's keep this verse in mind in light of the fire falling down on the temple, right? They would have been amazing to see in the Old Testament when the fire came down. Would you have considered, if you were there, taking a sledgehammer and striking the temple, trying to destroy it? I'd say no. Like, that would have been amazing. I wouldn't have been like, oh, I'm going to destroy this one wall now. Of course not. Then, let's think about in our context. We shouldn't be so quick maybe to gossip or slander leadership, or try to divide the church. That is like taking a sledgehammer. It's what we do here. Right? Because the enemy, he's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. He's trying to separate us. What doesn't want us to be the bride. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Why is God, God so harsh about this? Paul explained that God's temple is sacred, and we collectively... Are that temple. Every time we speak evil about a member, it's like taking a sledgehammer to the temple. Now there's space for debate, of course, and thoughtfulness and opinion and engagement. Of course we need that. So we sharpen each other. But in the 21st century, there's been a loss of a deep sense that we are the temple of God. It is sacred to Him. What we do is a, it's, He loves it. It's, we are His bride. He doesn't want to see us Try to separate from each other. The enemy, he knows this and is that us fellowshipping with one another is a sacred thing. Us doing this is a sacred thing. He knows that when we gather together, our light is the strongest. So what the enemy wants to separate is from being the church. He knows, right, there's the light on the hill and it's bright. But imagine all of us together, how that shines bright like that fire. It should be a beacon now that we are here together. The enemy doesn't want us to carry out what it says in Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. And it says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ, who are many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I'm just going to start closing. Start closing. I'm going to be closing here. The truth is this. If you were to take one thing home, yes, we are sacred. The truth is this, is that we are better together. Being together makes us better. For some of you who know Jack Johnson, there's a song called Better Together. Maybe that's ringing through your head right now. It was our wedding song, Mike, Kim, and I, so it's definitely ringing through my head. If we think of ourselves as living stones individually, as Paul says, when we come together, we form something amazing, something big. We need each other. You need the person to your right, to your left. I need you. You need me. This is how we become better. We each carry something that is different from one person to the next. Our talents are different. My talent is different. Your gift Different. My gifts are different. I need you. You need me. We all represent a different attribute of God, and that attribute sharpens us to go deeper. This is why the enemy doesn't want us to be together. He realizes we are better together. When we grow in our relationships with each other, we grow in our relationships with Christ and our relationship with Him. When I was 19, me and my friend we did what we called church tour. 2003, I think it was called. We even had a shirt made up. I know it sounds really sad and it's quite, quite foolish. It was quite foolish. And so what we did through the summer is we just went through a bunch of different churches each Sunday and we just met and we just got to be in services and and it was we it was enjoyable. We met a lot of people, experienced a lot of awesome services, experienced some boring services, not unlike this one. But we felt <laughs> we. i just kidding. We felt disconnected. We felt lonely. We felt like something was missing, just hopping from place to place. There is, some, there is something about a community that is irreplaceable. There is something about being in a place that you are moving forward with. There is something about being connected with others and having a common goal, knowing those people. There are so many truths about to the splendor of gathering together. In Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, it says this. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This, our conversations, church, our corporate worship, it spurs me on. I look forward to coming to Sunday. Not, this is not a job to me. This is a blessing to be here. Yes, all we do here on Sundays is for him, but as a sacred family of God, it changes me. This is sacred. Not religious or tradition. When we gather, we are now this sacred temple. And I'll close and Warren and his team can head up. Ephesians 3, 8-11 says this. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to the light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might be be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see in this passage that we, God has an eternal plan, something big. The church has a part in accomplishing that plan. The phrase, through the church, in verse 10, shows that the church is to be God's instrument in accomplishing his plan He's using us. The word for fellowship is koinonia. Maybe you've heard of this. A really popular word, especially early 2000s. Koinonia was a word that was phrased a whole lot. You might see it when you go into the Christian stories. It says koinonia. Maybe you put that over the door of your house. Come fellowship with us here. If you did, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just saying it's a big word that was used. Koinonia is used 19 times in the New Testament. And in addition to being translated as fellowship, it is also translated by the words contribution, sharing, and participation. So it's not just fellowship, meeting together, it's action. Words, we speak. Contribution means we're actually giving, to, giving something. And participation means like we are actively being a part of what the, God's called us to do as the church. A close study of the usage of this word shows that action is always included in its meaning. Fellowship, yes, this makes us better together. This makes us better together. Gathering as one is sacred, yes, but it is also about doing together. This is great. This is amazing. This is sacred, but it truly becomes fellowship when we do what the church is to do. We'll get more into that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, you view this as important, sacred, so important that you gave your son to die for us so we can have relationship with you, so then now we can be that temple, and so now we can meet together, and that same fire that came down in the Old Testament now is in us, and as we meet together, this fire that's in us individually, it magnifies as we are a group, and that fire is your light here on this world. This is amazing. The fact that we get to gather on Sundays to sharpen each other, to encourage each other, to make each other better, not because of me individually, because you inside of me and the things that you have placed in my heart, and the talents you have given me. So I find a joy, and Lord, you find a joy when we meet together. And so we pray as we continue to meet, we would continually sharpen each other to be your hands and feet. In your name we pray. Amen.